expanding the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Our con hangover has subsided and we have found episode 71 of Down and Nerdy where we've just sort of decided to possibly hire insects as interns. I'm just so tired right now, dude. I probably woke up like 15 minutes ago. And that is the kind of dedication that we bring to this show every week for you, the listener. I'm James Witham alongside... <sighs> the very tired Nick Pataglia, the American one arm. Who's cosplaying as Sleepy from The Seven Dwarves right now. Yes. But you don't have the ears for it, though. That's the thing. No, I don't have the big, humongous ears, which is fine. Got a huge nose, though, so that makes up for it. You know, you'd think that would keep him from sleeping well, having the big ears. You know, a lot of stuff getting in there. Yeah, he must be dating Bill Cosby or something like that. Oh, gosh. No refills left on that prescription, I don't know. Nope, none at all. But, I mean, it's an exciting show this week. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Actually, some stuff that we can't really talk about here. But here's what we can talk about. The fact that we've got the right, the creative team behind one of the hottest books in DC right now, and that's Black Canary. Yeah, man, Annie Wu and Brennan Fletcher—they're gonna be joining us for our main topic. Where it's so awesome, you know. This this comic blows up, and you know, the next thing we know, we're interviewing these two people, and it's so awesome. Like the comic, you know, we read issue two recently, and it just like the series just keeps on getting better and better. I mean, I added this to my poll the second that I found out that it was going to be coming out. And I remember when I uh, reviewed issue one a couple weeks back, of course I picked it up at fantasy escape comics and cards in Virginia beach. When I reviewed it, I just, I loved it. Everything about it just was like, yes, this is something that we need right now. And I can't just can't wait to dive into that with them. Exactly. You know, and just some of the way that the art form is, we talked about, you know, a couple weeks ago when we reviewed issue number one, but it's, it's really, really fun to have both of them on at the same time and have them talk about this book and just the career and just stuff they do in their you know own lives outside of comics. It's, you know, Brendan's actually a major cinephile, so we're going to see if we we'll talk to him about a little bit of movie stuff, and, you know, it's going to be a fun interview, let's put it that way. Andy Wu is a great follow on Twitter. So oh, my even, God, she's Before hilarious. we even get to the interview, I just want to let everybody know, follow at Annie W, A-N-N-I-E-W on Twitter. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Okay? She's hilarious. She's just like, it's it's nice. This is what I like about the comics industry and all. The comics industry, unlike if you worked in an office or something like that, allows you to be you on social media. Yeah. You know, because the thing is, like, we see a lot of people, like, they say certain things on social media, like, that's not you. Like, I just went out with you the other day, and you're not acting this way. But on social media, you're acting just totally, right. you know, cased in person. With, with comics... And, you know, hey, let it, let it, you know, have personality. I mean, if you're an artist or a writer, you got to have personality. And that's what I love about DC Comics and, and Marvel, you know, certain industries that allow their creative team to, you know, just, hey, say what you want on Twitter. Just let it be you. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, at James Ace with them on Twitter. And I know that you're at where now? Merc with one arm. I just, I want to let you do it this time. Because yeah. I remember I didn't last time. You were like, whoa. Whoa. And then I went back to edit the show, and I heard it, and I'm like, oh, I feel like an ass. That's now. right. That's that's one of those things where we went back. 
I feel vindicated. It's like a correction in the newspaper that they bury <laughs> on page 12, you know? Yes. Yeah, Wait, yeah. people still read newspapers, right? Yeah, I, I, I think maybe like the two popular people that do. I'm not sure. Well, you don't need a nerd mag for us because we've got nerd news coming up. Of course, we're going to be talking about our review of Ant-Man. Was it Marvel's first big flop? We're going to find out. But first, we have a very specific new comic that we're going to be reviewing, and that's next on Down and Nerdy. Hey, this is comic book writer Ron Mars. You are listening to the Down and Dirty Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls. We get out those long boxes and discuss what we're reading this week. Of course, this segment's brought to you by Fancy Escape Comics and Cards and Aragon Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and the gang and all their great stuff. Great magic cards, great comics, great art. Go see it all at Fancy Escape. So, James, I'll let you take over, sir. We actually did a the same book this week. And it was actually a very, very big arc that's going to be starting from Valiant Comics. It's actually Book of Death number one, which was written by Robert Venditti. Art, amazing art, by the way, by Robert Gill and Doug, Bra- Doug Braithwaite. Colors by David Barron. Also, a little bit of help with Brian Reber. So we don't see two colorists very often in a book. But man, Nick, there was so much going on. And we are going to dive really deep into this comic. And if you're not really familiar with the Valiant Universe... Let's let's go through some of the characters before we really get started and in diving into this book. Okay, so you have of course Exo Man of War, uh, Bloodshot, and you also have Gilad, who is, as you point out, James. He's the Eternal Warrior. He basically is the protector of the Geomancers. <coughs> yeah. And for thousands of years, and that's important because Tama, who is kind of like going to be the central figure, I think of this of this arc, is a Geomancer, and it's kind of like they have the ability to uh, speak to the Earth kind of thing she's an eight-year-old girl first of all and uh there's still a lot of mystery surrounding that character i know there's a tie-in uh geomancer's tie-in book that you can get as a retailer incentive for this that really uh, opens things up but like you said uh, ninjack is in this livewire of course is also in this Mm -hmm. and then they've got kind of like their mi6 government agency people uh colonel jamie capshaw and neil alcott and one of the other characters that we don't really know a whole lot about yet is this David character from the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah, David. In the beginning of the book, David is like this little kid who pretty much his mother comes in outside and says, you know, David, you know, come on inside. And he's like, Mom, these these snakes, they love me. And he has this very, like, antichrist-esque moment where he has, like, the snakes all around him. It's kind of like... Dude, okay, this guy might be something a little bit later down the line that we and, might not know. And what's funny about that is that we go from that and into basically this, you know, there's like a SWAT team incursion kind of thing in present day in, yeah. in Wyoming of all places. And then the, like, what was it, like the third or fourth page, you just see this huge blow up. And this, this is going to be a little bit spoiler free, spoiler filled, by the way. You see this huge blow up of like this giant massacre in a tree. Yeah. That's like, wow. And that was my first wow moment. I'll paint it to you this way. It's kind of like, you ever seen Evil Dead and the scene where she's in the tree and tree pretty much, you know, picks her up off the ground. Picture that, but instead it impales people through the chest. Mm. And I got to tell you, you know, the way that this book is, you know, it's called Book of Death for a reason. And we see for that reason, but... This is the book where Prince bringing everybody, you know, everybody in, and you know, Exo Man of War and everybody else from their other arcs. This, you know, we look at, at Secret Wars, we look at Convergence, but I think Book of Death, what Valiant's done, this is how you do a really good tie-in, especially something you know that deals with sort of could be the end of your universe. 
Right. And the thing that I that I that struck me throughout this book as I was reading it is like you said, there's so many characters involved, as there usually is, with arcs like this, but never at any point, and this is to uh, this is a great job by the folks over at Valiant and Rob, Robert Venditti is that it never felt forced. It yeah. never felt like you're shoving all of these characters in my face. And I never felt overwhelmed reading this. This did such a good job of balancing everybody. Of course, you got, you know, Ninjak, who's kind of like the Wolverine-esque loose cannon that uh, you brought that up when we were talking about this off the air. And then you've got like this kind of mentor student relationship between exo man of war and gilad and there's there's kind of underlying tension there and gilad for whatever reason is protecting tama to the death so it's just very interesting how everything's intertwined and then you bring in the david character who like you said is this very like evil dead ass kind of creepy and he's trying to hunt her down for some reason yeah yeah and I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, you look at, at this and it's just, oh my God, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, here's the thing too, you know, when I'm reading, when I'm reading this and I, and the way that you want to do your series where it could be the end of the world, you have something like a book of death scenario, you want to write it like a horror movie. And that's what Valiant does. That's what Venditti does. He writes it like a horror movie and it's amazing. Like, it, that's the thing is that. When there's tension, you feel that tension. You know, there's tension mm-hmm. between Gilad and Axel Manowar. You feel that tension. You get a little bit of a Civil War-esque vibe, you know? And it pretty much the way that the first issue ends, you feel like, oh, man, this things are about to get really, really interesting. And, you know, here's the thing. You're reading this. Remember, what makes this so great, too, and adds to the excitement of reading this, is that this first issue is sold out everywhere. Valiant has yeah. to do a second printing that's coming out next month. Yeah, it's going to be coming out August 19th. And they one of the reasons it's called Book of Death, too, because there's literally a book that Gilad's trying to get Tama to read from because apparently only she can read from it. And it kind of tells you about how, you know, sort of everybody dies. Everybody, yeah, meets their end. So, And then we don't want to spoil too much. There's a big fight scene or what is going to be a big fight yeah. scene, I think, in issue two. That's coming up uh, between Gilad and some of the other some of the other members of the book, and it's just like one of the things I love about this is, and this is going to sound weird, but follow me on this. It's okay. like you don't know where it's going to go, really, but you know where it's going immediately. You know what I mean? Well, my thing is this: is like when I'm, when you're you know we're not going to talk about go into detail of her when she's reading the book because there's just a lot of stuff going on that's yeah. spoiler heavy. But <clears throat> when you're reading it. And you do that little foreshadowing. You know how a lot of comics do it and certain movies do it where you foreshadow mm-hmm. some things, bad things happening. This does it to where you don't feel like, oh, man, now I know what's going to happen in the end. This is pretty much what I read. I'm like, holy God. Right. It was, it was like when, when we were reading Original Sin and you brought up how when you reviewed it at one point, I think it was not quite halfway through the arc. And you're like, there's still four or five issues left and I already know what's going to happen. Yeah. And this, I do not feel that way about this at all. But can I we mean, just say that the art by Gill and Braithwaite are, are just, and everybody else is just fantastic. It's it, so detailed and yes. it has that really great feeling of it. You know, when David is in that, that dungeon essay, it's all red, like a dark room pretty much. It's just, wow. When, when there, there's a scene with a, like a whole bunch of scorpions. Yeah. In it. And I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail because, again, I don't want to spoil too much because we want you to go out and buy this book. Where there's just so much detail 
in the art of these scorpions that are sort of marching and attacking kind of thing, it's like, it was <laughs> meticulous yeah. in the detail. And I just appreciate that, especially when this Valiant has made it clear that this is a big deal for them. Oh, yeah. It's, they're going all out in this. And, and for me, you know, I think how, you know, you look at the pros, there's no cons for this at all. I realize this is no. a perfect book. You know, the, for the pros, you know, the art's really well done. The, again, the book plays like a horror story within the superhero realm. And, again, you don't get lost. So if you're somebody even, you know, we read Valiant. But, I mean, if you're somebody who doesn't know Valiant a lot, you can go into this series yes, and not be true. lost. Right. They actually give you a nice little description of each character right there in the beginning of the first issue. So you're not necessarily going to know all the backstory or anything, but you can absolutely read this and not feel lost. So don't feel like you can't go to your local shop or digitally and pick this up and be lost because you won't. You will absolutely have a feel of what's going on. And the pacing of the story by Venditti is so good here. It flows so well. And for first issue, that can be a pitfall sometimes. Not at all in this book. So I will definitely go out and say this is a pull for me. This is a pull for me. And that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Coming up next, we're going to be reviewing Ant-Man. And why did it kind of not do so at the box office? Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy coming up next. Hey, this is Courtney Lynn, a.k.a. Harley Quinn from the Harley Quinn web series. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. So when it comes to reviewing a big Marvel Cinematic Universe picture, it's not a small task. But this week, we're going to tackle Ant-Man. And I think that this was kind of the one, Nick, when we heard it announced, we kind of pointed it and it was like, maybe this is going to be the one that we need to keep our eye on as far as how successful it's going to be in the future. Yeah, so I mean, it had a budget of $130 million. And then opening weekend, it made $58 million. Now, it isn't the first movie to have that kind of opening weekend where maybe it does a little bit below people's expectations. But the thing is, you look at all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they've all made budget by $10 million or more. And James, you and I were talking about this off the air and what it would take to, for this movie to be successful or considered a hit. And I said, it has to make 140, you know, it has to make or more million. It has to beat budget by a little over $10 million in order for it to be considered a hit, I think. Yeah, because, I mean, think about what happens when you don't make budget. I mean, I know that this is a Marvel movie, and you kind of expect it to automatically do well, but this and this movie did still did pretty well, but at the same time, comparatively speaking, you look at this and you go, okay, well, what if they don't make their budget back? And that is a big deal. I mean, it might not seem like a big deal for... And trust me, we're gonna get we're gonna dive into the actual review of the movie here in a second, but we want to talk about this right off the bat. We're not saying we didn't like the movie. What we're saying is is that what does this say if this movie does not make budget for the future of the MCU? Exactly. And you look at how you know one of the, there's two uncredited sequences in here. And one of them is very key on a second one, on a second movie happening. Oh yeah. Now again, I think I think uh, a second movie will be done because, again, Marvel has the resources. They had the money. You know, it's not – you know, and remember, this is kind of like when you do a scene like that, it brings you back to Green Lantern when Sinestro becomes, you know, Sinestro Corp. And it's just – we never got a sequel because this movie just bombed. Right. But this, I think the budget is – is again, it's $130 million, But, again, remember, though, this movie made $24 million on it was opening night and $58 million total. So it's kind of like you really only made – 
think about it, outside of opening night, a little over thirty million. So, and that's that's that's. Sad. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that's sad. What I'm trying to get at is that's that's telling. But also, you as you mentioned off the air, James, last night is that we were talking. Is you have that what forty percent drop off every week? At and least and every mention, movie does. Yeah, and not to mention Pixels is coming out this weekend. Now again, it is an Am Sandler movie. I believe is coming out this weekend or next weekend. But when that comes out, you know how's that going to fare against Ant Man? You know, or, yeah. I mean, there's your competition versa. right there, especially since everybody that's a huge Marvel fan has already seen Ant Man. Yeah, okay, I think we could safely say that, right? Yeah. So everybody that's already a huge Marvel fans already seen Ant Man. And is this one of those movies you'd go see twice? I don't know. We'll get into the, the plot here in just a second. But I just worry that if, if 59, $58 million is your start, let's say you have a 50% drop-off. That's 29 So then you're sitting there right around 80 You still have $50 million to make up before you make budget. You mean to tell me that they're going to be able to make up $50 million by dropping off by 30 to 50% each week? I don't and think this, so. And this is domestic box office. And people are saying, well, worldwide. No, honestly, worldwide, everything makes budget worldwide. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. But domestic is what matters the most because, yes. again, these are American studios you're dealing with. Yeah, these are our movies. We should be able to fund them on our own kind of thing. Yeah. But I just, I just look at that, though, man, and it's kind of like – you know, I mean, we'll get into the plot in a little bit, but it's just when you look at all the success Marvel's happening, and again, we're now in Phase 3. I know people saying, well, Marvel said, you know, it's going to be considered Phase 2, and so the war kicks off Phase 3. That makes no sense. No, sorry, Marvel. That's not going to Especially when Feige said that each phase ends with an Avengers movie. Yeah. Yeah, no. This is not Phase 2. Sorry. You can, you can say it is all you want. It's not Phase 2. It's Phase 3. So and, we're going forward as if this is the start of Phase 3. Yeah. And does part of you think that the reason why they said that is because they knew this was going to happen? Yeah. I absolutely think that they, they thought this might be the one where it's not a breakout smash success. Although I kind of think it's a little bit unfair. And I swear we're going to get into the movie here in a second. But... Advertising-wise, they did not push Ant-Man half as hard as they pushed Guardians. And I would say as far as from an unknown standpoint for the general public, Ant-Man and Guardians of the Galaxy are probably right along the same level. So I just don't understand why Marvel didn't give Ant-Man the same publicity and the same push that they gave Guardians. Well, I think Ant-Man is a little bit more known than Guardians only because of Hank Pym. People right. know who Hank Pym is. Grant Scott Lang is the character who plays Ant Man in here. But the thing is, when I whenever I go on went online, I saw ads for Ant Man. Never really saw trailers really play. I saw physical marketing, like the little tiny billboards that were cemented right. to the sidewalks in L.A. and the poster on the bus stops where Ant Man's like holding up the poster, kind of thing, you know? Yeah, which was cute, but I mean. Yeah. It just didn't have that major like TV push or, you know, major online marketing campaign that Guardians had. So, I don't know, but let's dive into the actual movie itself because I actually think this is going to be one of those movies where we'll look back years from now and be like, that's probably one of the most underrated Marvel movies that they had. Well, I, I look at it like this, okay, despite what we say about the budget, say it doesn't make budget. I look at this as Ant-Man as the, as kind of how people would view like a Scott Pilgrim. Granted, because I'm not saying because Edgar Wright did the screenplay. And a lot of people are saying, well, Edgar Wright, you know, he got you know, he got he left the project, they rewrote stuff. I'm sorry. In the end credits, it says screenplay by Edgar Wright. 
Yeah. And it's written by Edgar Wright and like three other people's Paul Rudd being one of them. So I'm like, I'm just going with Edgar Wright on this. Yeah. But I, I say that because it's one of those movies where it's it's a really good movie. It just doesn't do well in the theater. And, that's, and there's nothing theater. wrong with that. I mean, you can like something and have it not make money. That's fine. I actually think that Paul Rudd did a fantastic job as Scott Lang, and I never had any doubt that he would. He was probably, and this is another testament to Marvel doing so well with their casting. He was probably the perfect choice for Scott Lang and Ant-Man because he played that role of Scott Lang so well. And Michael Douglas's Hank Pym I just thought was so cool. Yeah, and here's the thing. Is, you know, we talk about Paul Rudd as Scott Lang. And what I like about it, what's so great about him as Scott Lang is that you know, there's that prison scene. You know, he's beating up guys. He's saying, sorry, sorry, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, that fight, with, that fight with Anthony Mackie, uh, Falcon, that was pretty funny. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I mean – you know, here's the thing is that, you know, he has those serious sides of him, too. So it's not like as people say, you know, for example, when you see Greenland, it's like, oh, it's Ryan Reynolds being Ryan Reynolds. You know, here you don't say it's Paul Rudd playing Paul Rudd. You know, Right, exactly. He, he shows the different dimensions of his character of you know, being serious and whatnot and then being funny. And then, again, Michael Douglas is Hank Pym. The way that – in the comics, Hank Pym is a son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. Michael Douglas, wow, just just wow, really really good, and I love the fact of how and why they talk about why Pym isn't the Ant Man anymore, and how he says, you know, the Pym particles they mess with my brain, and again, it's in the comics, so I'm not spoiling anything. Well, I mean, this is a review. This is going to be spoiler heavy, so just yeah. buckle up for that, kids. Yeah, and you know, he says, you know, the Pym particles mess with my brain. I can't be the Ant Man anymore because of that. And so he finds Scott, you know, who's this cat burglar. And what I like, too, is I want to say this. This is why I think really made the movie progress fast enough, is that we start off with Scott in prison. We don't see Scott doing what he gives in the prison for right. which is pretty much stealing right. funds from his corporation, being a whistleblower, and giving it to charity, you know? Yeah, exactly. Baskin-Robbins always knows. And I think you were talking about with there was a legit – fight scene in this movie yes. one of the things that at first I, when i first saw the movie before i had a chance to uh, go home and sit down and think of my mom like was there really only one major fight scene how can you do that in a movie like this but then i thought about it's like you know what they did differently usually in movies like this you'll have the main baddie and the main uh, protagonist they'll have a small battle the protagonist will struggle and then they'll fight at the end and and that'll kind of round things out this time what they decided to do instead the first fight scene, real fight scene in the movie, was between Ant-Man and Falcon. Yeah. And I thought about it. I was like, you know what? They just basically trumped one of the comic book movie tropes that usually always happens where you've got that sort of, okay, he doesn't do so well against against the main baddie and later on he figures it out. And they I'll, skipped that part. And I'll say this. The fight between him and the Falcon, the way they introduced Falcon in this, it doesn't feel forced for an Avengers no. tie-in. And you didn't really expect it. No. You know, that I mean, was the oh, thing. If you saw the trailer, you knew Falcon was in the tra- right. movie. But. Right, but if, if, you didn't, if you didn't happen to see that trailer or if you were yeah. going in there fresh, yeah, you, when he's you didn't flying really over, see it. When he's flying over the ants, you see the Avengers logo and you're like, yeah. oh, and, and Hank's like, oh, no, Scott, no, yeah. don't do it, don't yeah, do it. Exactly. Uh, one of the other things that I loved was the, the interaction between – Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly. 
Oh my god, yeah. I mean, there was it actually felt like there was legit tension there. I mean, well, oh, you know yeah. the, you know the history between Hank Pym and, and Hope Van Dyne anyway from the comics, but they really brought that forward. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that, and the thing is is that, you know, with a lot of struggles in movies between like a, a father and daughter or, you know, parent and and, and child stems mostly from well, why did this other parent leave or why does other parent die? And in this case, sorry, I'm hiccuping. But in this case, of course, centers around Janet Van Dyne and her death and Michael Douglas not being forward with hope about it. And there is a scene where Michael Douglas appears to explain to her how her, her mother died a mm-hmm. hero. And again, Janet Van Dyne was not cast in the movie, so the way they hide her face and everything else is amazing. Very well done. And he first tells her how she died a hero and everything else, and it, I almost cried in the theater, dude. Because I know, it was gut-wrenching, man. And then Paul Rudd, being Scott Lang, says, yep. you know, oh, finally, we're all happy. You know, he, he's like, oh, I just ruined that special moment, didn't I? And Michael was like, yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, breaking the mood there. That was a great, <laughs> that was a great I got to tell you, though, Sometimes, and I point to Transformers Age of Extinction as, as a way that this can go wrong. The, I guess, you call it, I guess you could call it a comedic supporting cast. And oh, movies yeah. can kind of sometimes feel forced and kind of feel like they're in the way. But Michael Pena and his little group there of Scott Lang's yes! group. I got to tell you, man, that was some funny stuff. Yeah. They did such a great job. And I'm not even a huge Michael Pena fan. But man... He made me. It made me want to do. Uh, want to see more of like his little spiels that he had. Where he's like, yes. "Yo, man, I saw this girl, right?" And she said that she was working for this guy, right? And every time that one of those happened, <laughs> I'm like, "And they do his." Oh. What's great is they like. So he's explaining like the whole. Remember in the beginning, the first job he do, he's talking to Scott about how he got a tip, and the tip is pretty much how to steal. Uh, Hank, you know, bringing Hank Pym's home and steal the Ant Man suit, and my he's like, "Yo, I saw I was here." This my cousin, right? I was having, I was having, I was wine tasting my cousin. And he says, "Yo, I know this guy. This guy's a big drug dealer, and he's got this girl. And this girl was at a party, and while he's talking, they're doing Pena's voice over. Yeah, what he's saying is t- saying certain yeah. things, and it's hilarious. It really is. And that scene where they start pulling up to the house and like, we're gonna, we're gonna go help Scott because he needs us, and all the cops are just like, we're just gonna back it up." Yeah, back it up. We're just backing up. So back it up. The comedic element there, it didn't feel forced. I, I, I love the fact that they did that. The, the funny things that they did, I think they did very well with the miniaturization fights with the uh, yeah. yellow jacket and stuff like that. Like the whole Thomas the Tank Engine. Thing. Oh my god, that was great. Where you go, where they pull back and you don't see anything except like the <laughs> tiny little train fall yeah. over. Kind of thing. Yeah, and then uh, later on, Thomas the Tank Engine turns into the Kool Aid Man. Yeah, I mean it's just. <laughs> It was very cool the way that they did that. And the whole bug zapper thing. Yeah. That was funny. Uh, the only thing, the only criticism I would really have, and I and I, I got to find a little bit of something, is that I didn't really buy Corey Stoll as Yellow Jack. He was a great Darren Cross, but as Yellow Jack, and I'm like, dude, I'm not scared of you at all. See, I, didn't, I didn't have a problem with Corey Stoll as... as uh... Ant, or his yellow jacket and Darren Cross. I felt like he really did well. I felt Corey Stahl when he was in the yellow jacket thing showed how the pin particles can really mess you up. Yeah. My only complaint with the film is how they treated Aunt, uh, Hope Van Dyne in the movie, where she was more of just a plot device for a love story. 
And well, I don't even think it was that because they didn't really even get to that until that's the end. What that's what I'm saying is that they, they – she was like – what was her purpose really? You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't really give her much to do. But again, I think if they get the sequel, it's going to be centered around – Well, yeah, no. and I think that's why they did that. I think they specifically gave her nothing to do because it upped her level of frustration with her dad. And then that right. kind of brought it all home. I mean the love story thing, that didn't really come into play – until the very end. I was actually worried that there was going to be a love story angle between her and uh, Corey Stahl's character, Darren Cross, but that never really materialized. So I was glad that they didn't do that. I, I think that what they did and the frustration that you have was mirrored by her character. Yeah. And I think that's why they did it because well, they wanted her like, to come off as frustrated. Well, cause it was kind of like, let her do something cool. Like instead of just yeah. like, it says like, you know, I know she wasn't going to get in the suit, but it's like, let her have some badass scene or some other scene. It's like, Nope, she's just a secretary for Stoll, or she's gonna do this, but then Michael Douglas pretty much kiboshes it, you know. And you know, other than the scene where she's kicking Scott Lang's ass in training, is like that's pretty much it. Well, remember, she's the one that helps him figure out how to control the ants in the first place, right? So that was that was a pivotal part that she had to play and there. Can you just but... say the way they do the ants in the movie is just amazing too. Oh, it was very cool, and they actually made you care about the ants. When my, when my wife and I got in the car, we we're driving home. I said, "So what'd you think?" She said, "I don't think I can kill ants anymore." <laughs> so, so that was a really funny, really funny back and forth between her and I. But they really used it well, and they actually explained the science behind the ants and stuff, which I thought was really neat. And yeah, I mean, I just think overall, uh, it it certainly wasn't the best. Marvel movie that that they've ever done, but I think what we're going to do is going to look back and find out that this was going to be this is going to be the most underappreciated of all, maybe of all the Marvel movies going forward. I know it's hard to say that now because we've still got plenty more ahead, but as of right now, I think this movie is already very underappreciated. I think Avengers movie aside, they take out the Avengers movies. When you're talking talking about main superhero movies, like where it's just like their own world in a sense, and I think what makes this movie so good in my opinion is that it's fresh it's a, yeah. you know it doesn't take place in new york it takes place in san francisco you know they don't really mention a lot of the avengers until you see the scene with falcon and then there's a spider-man line that they drop yep, there's too, a spider-man reference yep so the end credit scenes were basically the wasp wasp suit reveal yep between michael douglas and evangeline lillian this the suit looks amazing yeah so i can't wait to see her suit up as wasp for the first time the second one Definitely very interesting going forward. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't always spoil it, but this is one I just don't want to spoil. I, it's just, I don't want to. You can do it if you want, but I'm not going to be that guy. Let's just say there's Civil War elements there. Yeah. Oh, let's do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a review. You should already know. Yeah. But on the off chance that you haven't seen the movie yet, that's the one we won't spoil because it's kind of a big well, I think it's, 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 it's so at the very major. end. It's at the very end, too. Yeah. So stay till the very end because that one is at the very end. So. It, 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 there are civil war elements that much we we will tell you. But my thing is this: when, you know, when looking at this, and I'm looking at, again, going back to my whole Avengers take and 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 you know, ranking the movies, I'd say if I had to rank the MCU movies, th- this to me would be top five. If you did, if, you, if you had to take out the Avengers movies, I, you know, Iron Man want to be in there. Winter Soldier would be in there. Guardians is in there. Yep. You know, I think Ant Man could be a solid four. It's 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 definitely creeping close to the top five anyway. But here's the question: I'm, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you, I'm gonna put you on the spot right now. Right. Was this? No, let me let me rephrase that. Did you enjoy this movie more than you enjoyed Ultron? Yes. Yes, I did. What, what does that say, though? 
it says that Ultron was pretty much overrated and it, it was served more as a purpose of when you watch Ultron, there's the same like, oh my god, he's gonna fight Thor, and it's like, nope, we cut the people getting saved. And it felt Ultron felt like we you know, that stop set, that 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 that, that buffer between Infinity War and like you know what I'm saying? It, it was like it felt like a stopgap. Yeah, that's what and, it was. And I kind of felt the same way because I'm, I was looking at it, and you know, like how I, when I mentioned this when we were reviewing Jurassic World. After I saw Jurassic World, I was like, wow, I liked this way better than uh, than Age of Ultron. Yeah. And now that I see Ant Man, I'm like, huh, I kind of enjoyed this more than Age of Ultron. And not that I didn't like Age of Ultron because I'm going to be adding it to my collection. I'm going to buy it when it comes out on Blu-ray. I will watch it again and enjoy it, but. The more and more I see stuff that's coming out, even from Marvel Studios, it's like, maybe Ultron really was super overrated. Yeah, and a lot of people I've talked to have said that, too. Big comic book fans, Marvel fans I've talked to have said that Ultron was overrated. I mean, it, Marvel fanboys don't get mad. I mean, we're still liking another Marvel movie more yeah. than Ultron. So well, it's I think... not like we're dogging Marvel movies because they're, I mean, they're all good. No, they're not all good. For the most part, they're all good. Yeah, but I mean, my thing is is just when I look at at Ant Man, I'm gonna wrap up in a little bit. When I look at Ant Man, this is Phase Three. All right, this is where we're starting to get into the, the characters that not a lot of people know about. You know, Doctor Strange, Black Panther. We're talking know, general public here, not general comic public book fans. So yeah, to come out with Ant Man. And Grandway makes it the box office is one thing, but to make it as enjoyable as they did really was like I think it took I think Marvel stepped back, looked at Ultron, and said, you know what? We need a new fresh kind of start and Ant Man is that. And so I think and again, it's one of those things where are we seeing this point where maybe Movies are better off by them just being their own and not having really any Avengers elements or maybe limited Avengers well, elements in it. We talked about that with our uh, should the Marvel should there be a connection should it yep. all be connected. We talked about that in a previous episode, and maybe this is an example of maybe why they shouldn't be so much. Maybe Ant Man is that example, and you know it was funny because Ultron. If you look back at it, it was almost like Marvel's attempt to try and be a little darker. Well, also, it was their attempt, I think, to one-up the first Avengers movie. Yeah, and, and I don't think that that's their... I don't think that's their niche. I think they need to stick with the, you know, the the comedic, the f more friendly-feeling movies, because I don't think Dark is the way to go Yeah. for Marvel, and I think that Ant-Man is proving that, because Ant-Man didn't have a single Dark element in it, I didn't think, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. Well, it's time for our reviews, and... Uh, well, not reviews, but our ratings, I should say, and... James, I'll have you go first. What's your rating out of 10? I'm going to go 7 out of 10. You go 7. Why 7? Only because I, I think that there were a couple of little things that, you know, that I, that I didn't really like, like the whole yellow jacket thing. I didn't really buy when he got in the yellow jacket suit as him as a legit threat. Uh, but there was so much other stuff to enjoy about the movie. So I think I got to go 7 out of 10. I'm going to go with – I'm going to go – I'm going to go 9 on this wow, one. okay. Uh, because it was so fresh, again, it takes place in San Francisco. Yes, there's Avengers, quote-unquote, in it, but it doesn't make you feel like they're jamming or they're just putting it in there. They actually right. have a reason. They give them a reason to be in there. 
Um, the felt connection between Scott and his little young daughter and the whole family tension there. Of course, you have Judy Greer in there as well, um, who's awesome. She's an American treasure. She's an American treasure. <laughs> she is an American treasure. But, uh, no, I felt that everybody – there wasn't – I'll put it this way. Where you had probably Corey Stoll, I looked at this cast. I looked at this – even with T.I., I looked at this cast and I said, you know what? There's not one character that I hate because of the person's playing them wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yes, I wish they did more with Hope Van Dyne. But, you know, here's the thing. It it, I, it was just refreshing. I just said I was laughing. Like, it was the first Marvel yeah. movie where I literally, you know, they had the Marvel jokes in there and other movies. This was the first time where I legitimately laughed out right. loud in the theater with this. And the fight scenes when he's switching from big to small to big and he's kicking everybody's ass. That was amazing. Yeah, they did a really good job with that. No question about it. Well, that's going to be our review of Ant-Man. If you haven't gone out and see it, definitely go out and see it now because it was a very good movie and a great way to kick off, I don't care what Marvel says, Phase 3 of the MCU. But coming up next, you know we've got a boatload of nerd news, so be ready for that. More Down and Nerdy coming up next. This is Abby Darkstar, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We go around the internet and decide and see what's trending because it's time for what, James? Nerd news! And we actually got it right this time. We actually didn't go off sync at all. This <laughs> you know what? It was SDCC. We were exhausted. Yeah. I think we. I think it's okay if every now and then, you know, it kind of flubs up a little bit. But some big news coming out. Gotham's decided to make a splash with one casting in particular, I think, Nick. Exactly. Of course, Michael Chiklis, who, of course, was on The Shield. He played Vic Mackey on The Shield. And then he also, of course, was the thing in the Fantastic Four, which I find hilarious how the article I found this on said that Fantastic Four starred... Michael Chiklis. Yeah, what the hell? I'm like, really? Like, Didn't he win an Emmy for The Shield? Yeah. I, mean, I understand it's a comic book site, but the Fantastic Four, I think I don't think Chiklis is walking around saying, I was the thing in no. Fantastic Four. No, if anything, he's saying, I was the commish. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the commish? Yeah. That was like his first show ever. He was also some drunk guy at a party on Seinfeld, too. But, you yeah. know, hey, I, I would claim that before I would claim being thing in Fantastic Four. But anyways, he's playing the Captain Nathaniel Barnes in this next season. Uh, Barnes, who really doesn't have a comic book corollary, is actually somebody that Jim Gordon looks up to. He, again, is that no-nonsense. They characterize him as he pretty much rips out the dead wood. Yeah. The GCPD. Yeah, I know. And I think that that's a good thing. It's almost, you know, we've had so much turmoil with uh, with Jim Gordon. Now he finally has somebody that maybe he feels like has his back. I mean, Bullock had his back and the captain had his back, you know, when she needed to. But I think this is the guy. It's like he comes in. It's like, oh, like, OK, let's take out the trash. And Michael Chiklis is so suited for that kind of a role. That I think this is a perfect casting. Now, what I wonder is, is that there was another quote in the same article that it said that something along the lines of uh, one day he'll make an equally powerful enemy. So my question to you is the way that Gotham's kind of creating their own world here and kind of differentiating between the origins, where do you think they might go with that? I don't know, but in a sense, I kind of, and I'm saying this really like it's just somebody who sees where this stuff is going. I really hope that it doesn't become a, a something that they fall back on where, hey, we're introduced this character who is a no-nonsense, kind of a breath of fresh air for Gordon, and then all of a sudden we're just going to turn him, get him influenced or her influenced by the mob or whoever. I hope it's not something that keeps on going on and on and on. But to answer your question, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's not really an adversary. I think he'll end up being kind of like what the, uh, the new commissioner is now or whatever that that pretty much he had a problem with. I can't think of his name in the season, first season. Loeb. Loeb, yeah. yeah. Yeah, He. I think that's uh, – he'll become Loeb, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be very interesting to see what they do if maybe they decide to tie him into some sort of origin of another villain. I'm just not sure – what villain they would do that for. But either way, I'm really excited about this casting. And it looks like uh, Bruce Wayne's going to have a little bit of another love interest there. He's getting started early, that kid. Yeah, he is. Uh, Natalie Ann Lind has, has been cast as, Saint, as Silver St. Cloud. Uh, of course, she's going to be the niece of the recently big-casted, uh, big bad on Gotham, Theo Galavan. And Galavan's going to kind of serve, as I said, as a, as a father figure, too. Uh, I mean, again, it's it's... You know, I th- she's going to have the innocent intentions, but then also I think we're going to see more of an Ivy complex where she kind of gets that darkened heart towards the end. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of had an on-again, off-again relationship with Bruce Wayne, of course. I mean, she's been around since 1977. Who hasn't had an off-and-on relationship with Bruce Wayne? Well, yeah, that's exactly my point. I mean, she debuted in Detective Comics number 470 if you want to go, you know, find out what her origin was in the beginning. But, I mean... She's not really played a huge role. I know that they're thinking about maybe trying to reintroduce her into the comics um, in, in, the, in the newer runs of, uh, of the Batman comics, but I just don't know. that. I mean, I'm kind of a little disappointed that they're not furthering the Hush storyline where, yeah. you know, they become best friends and then we know what happens to Hush's parents and that kind of further. I kind of thought that in the first season that's the route that they were going to go. And I'm worried that they're going to get away from that. I mean, I know maybe you don't want to jump into that too soon. But when I saw this, I'm like, are they just going to forget about the whole hush thing now? Or are they going to save that for season three? Why are they waiting? Well, my thing is this, is that, of course, if you want to look for some of those comics that James talked about, you can always go to Fantasy Escape, Comics and Cards, and see Bob. But here's the thing, too, is I really hope, I really, this is what I really, really hope. I really hope Bruce Wayne doesn't become just a plot device and 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 terms of just a love story, like a young love story, like we had that with him and Selena Kyle in the first season a little bit. Uh, now him and Silver St. Cloud. You know what I'm saying? I I don't want it to be repetition. I, I know what you're saying. You don't I want it to be a main theme for the character yeah, in the season. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't fine. want it to be that. I want. I like it when he's this young kid who's going to Wayne Tech and or in Wayne Tower and pretty much like trying to find out what really happened and who was behind the murder of his parents. I want that. I'm not saying we're not going to get that. Right. But also the way that season one ended where they find out that the Batcave is there. Right. You let's know, not ignore that. Let's not I w- ignore that. For, I want season two to be Bruce Wayne, young Bruce Wayne's finding his backbone. Yeah. And the relationship between he and Alfred and the relationship that's going to build between he and Lucius Fox going forward. Yeah. They kind of set up. I agree. I think that I really hope they focus on that. I don't think that just because we saw this that it's going to be a main theme. The only thing that worried me was the whole mentor aspect that uh, that you were talking about for the for the big bad coming up. I don't want that to distract from what they were kind of building on in season 1. I hope they don't lose sight of uh, of what they've already built in season 1. Before we move on to our next story, part of me thinks that there's just going to be a point where Bruce Wayne and Alfred are going to kind of have it out. Where Alfred's like, hey, Theo Galvin's not your father. And he's like, well, neither are you. I'm just, I'm, I'm anticipating that type of, you know, argument because probably what's going to happen, which again, I, I just, again, I hope they don't fall too deep into this wormhole. I do think that that could be a good scene, though. So, oh, it could be a good scene, but I'm saying, I just hope it doesn't 
you know. No, I don't want it to be a main theme either. No, absolutely not. But moving on to our next story, of course, we're friends with the people over at IDW Entertainment, and they announced via press release yesterday that Sci-Fi has acquired the rights to Winona Earp, which is of course a live action, it's a live action television series based on the IW published publishing comic, which was created by Bo Smith, uh, Emily Andrews, who of course did Lost Girl and Killjoys, and they can be developed. They're going to be developing the series for television. It also going to serve as executive producer and showrunner, which is really, really important. Um, and also, it's going to get 13 episodes. And if people don't know what Winona Earp is, James, let them know. Well, actually, it's basically a contemporary thriller that's going to follow. It's actually Wired Earp's great-granddaughter, which I think is really cool right off the bat. Yeah. She's going to battle demons and other kinds of supernatural beings. And she's going to be that, you know, your typical witty, you know, wild kind of gunslinger, just like her great-great-granddaddy. And she's got some some unique abilities that, you know, we won't tell you about because we want you to go pick up the comic, of course, before you actually watch the show. But she's also got... A little bit of a posse along with her. Of course, Melanie Scarfano is actually going to be Winona Earp. Tim Rosen of Being Human and Instant Star is going to be Doc Holliday. Yes, that Doc Holliday. Yep. And then, of course, you've got Shamir Anderson, who was in Defiance and was on Constantine. That's going to play the quote-unquote mysterious Agent Dolls, which is in the press release. So, i got to tell you, I mean, I give, I give Sci-Fi Network a hard time sometimes, especially stuff like Sharknado, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> And uh, Super Croc night? versus Monster Gator and all this other stuff. Did you stuff. watch Sharknado last night? I can't, I can't, I can't do it, man. I just, <laughs> I just, I mean, I know it's it's more based on ridiculousness and comedy than anything else. It's, I just, I it's can't. Kind of, it's kind of like somebody saw the cow scene in Twister and said, I can do better. Yeah, and, and then they're going to make a fourth one. Come and then on, they, people. And then, and then they did a big mountain of cocaine afterwards and wrote the script for it. I just think that uh, it's nice that somebody's giving Ian Zeering work. Yeah. And, to, and Tara Reid. Yeah, I love that. I love that Tara Reid is taking credit for coming up with the whole Oh Hell No subtitle yeah. of that movie. Yeah, I'm sure there were many long, long sleepless nights coming up <laughs> with that one. But anyways, back to Winona Earp. Again, so you thir- uh, 13 one. It's going to get 13 one-hour episodes. And this is pretty cool. I want to kind of piggyback off something Robert Kirkman said a while back, how he said, zombies are kind of, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing. But he pretty much said zombies are reaching their end, and now demons are coming yep. into the forefront. Yep, I totally agree with that. And I think that sci-fi is going to try and capitalize on that. What this does is it kind of brings the science fiction world in with the kind of gunslinger world where you've yeah. got a name like Wyatt Earp. I love that they went with Winona Earp, too. Yeah. Because all I can think of is, remember the Judds, the country music group, the Judds? Yeah. And Winona Judd. All I can think of is Winona with guns and I'm gonna shoot somebody. <laughs> I got these demons here. Just, it kind of like, sounds like Scott Stapp from Creed or, uh, uh, Pearl Jam there. <laughs> Why don't I, I just, I mean, that's all I could see. I'm sorry. I know that. I mean, that's <laughs> I'm just picturing Why don't Jam. Yeah, exactly. How can you not? I mean, nothing no, like six gun revolver. No offense to Millie Scarfano because she's a, she's a very attractive woman and she's going to do a very good job. Uh, with this with the show, I'm sure, and I actually can't wait to watch it. But I hear Winona Earp, and I see Winona Judd. Uh, <laughs> that will change. That will change when the show comes out. I promise. I'm but. just picturing Winona Judd, like at the end of the original True Grit, where she's got this horse traps in her mouth, yeah. and two six shooters in her hands. <laughs> exactly. Demons. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, hey, and I'm sure the people at IDW are going, hey, whatever makes you remember the comic, whatever makes you remember the show, we don't oh, care. Shit. 
But uh, we, we can't re- wait to review this on the show, seriously, because it looks like it's going to be a, a very cool concept, so we can't wait for that to come out. But, Nick, one thing that we know is not going to be coming back is Sam Mendes when it comes to Bond. Yeah, and Sam Mendes, you know, he did the whole Casino Royale and Skyfall, and I'm picture- Inspector, I'm Quantum of Solace was the one there that a go. lot of people liked. But I liked, since he took over for Bond, Daniel Craig, I loved it. Like, Casino Royale... Probably one of my top three Bond films. I, I mean, you can say what you want about the new Bond stuff. I think it's been really, really good. Yeah. I mean, there was so much criticism before it even happened because, oh, you can't have a blonde Bond and all that. But then Sam like, Mendes really? Sam Mendes came in and Daniel Craig came in and they built something that was just so amazing. And now after Spectre, Sam Mendes says, I'm walking away. Yeah, and it's and in a sense, it's kind of like the reason why uh, we're seeing uh, oh Jesus, Joss Whedon leave Avengers and Marvel mm-hmm. because Mendes pretty much said you have to put everything else on hold, and this type of movie takes up your entire life. So again, I it's going to be interesting to see if by Mendes leaving that means they're going to recast and not, they're going to get rid of Craig, or you know maybe his deal might be up. I don't know. Um, normally when you get a new director in, they would want their own guy. Cause it, but yeah, I, but again, I think it's not, I think that if they're going to keep Daniel Craig, probably thinks he might be on the consulting people, one of the people consulting the next the new director. Um, but the way that this is with Spectre and the way that Skyfall ended, I could see this maybe as a good, I don't, we haven't seen it. It hasn't come out yet, but the way this is going, the way the trailers are, this seems like a great place to maybe end the Daniel Craig saga and, again, if they cast whomever else is James Bond, I would, like, again, we've built on this a lot of times, that James Bond, it'd be great if it wasn't really his real name, if it was more of just the code name James yeah, Bond. You know? that, yeah, that's the code name. I mean, of course, 007, but if James Bond is more of, like, the the overall, you know, the mystique of the person, not the actual person's name, I, I totally agree with that. And I kind of feel like this is where it ends, too, because... I mean, look at the history of the of James Bond. They, they've always found that point where they went, okay, we're going to end it here, and then we're going to pick back up. And it's funny because over the years, it's like James Bond is that one franchise where you expect it to be finite with a certain character playing the role. Right. I mean, we always get upset when, oh, they're rebooting Spider-Man again, or, oh, they're rebooting Batman again. Never once do we go, oh, I can't believe they're rebooting James Bond again. Right. Well, I think that's because of the fact that there's just so many different books, and the fact of the matter is, it's it's a. I think with spy films, they're a lot different than superhero films. Because superhero films, I think you get to portray a certain type of a person. Like Bond, of course, he has a suaveness. You know, he, he's Bond. But in a sense, when it comes to like Spider-Man, I think Spider-Man is a much bigger deal than James Bond because it's like, well, if you think about it, James Bond, is a, is a Spy film about a guy who's brash and kind of cocky and arrogant sometimes, and of course, is a ladies' man. That's pretty much almost a lot of people in Hollywood, a lot of guys in yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, that's fair. You know? <laughs> well, like, Bond doesn't really have an age limit. Like, Spider-Man has somewhat of an age limit, you know, in certain things. I mean, that that's that's a good point. I mean, you, you can really go with almost any age. I mean... I mean, for fuck's sake, George Lazenby was fucking Bond. Like, you know what would be cool, though, is if they... You know how they're doing Mr. Holmes yeah. with uh, Ian McKellen right now? It's like Sherlock Holmes is the last case. What if we did, like, a Mr. Bond at some point where it's like an old man Bond and it's his last <laughs> mission ever? Wouldn't that be cool, though? His last mission ever is not to shit his diaper at dinner. I mean, how long... Well, I mean, how long is he going to last, you know? Because yeah. I mean, he's, he's probably got some sort of STD with all that... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> all that banging that he's been doing over the years. Imagine like Mr. Bond is like tied in with Philadelphia. <laughs> do, do you do you think that he do you think that uh, uh, MI6 is that who he worked with MI6 MI6 yeah, yeah is, do you think that they supplied him with the with the uh, means of birth control or was he kind of <laughs> well, remember how I said in earlier show he has a dick of death where every time he has sex yeah. with a woman she just dies yeah so I mean you'd think that the women would catch on at some point obviously this guy has a reputation if, you know before you decided to uh, take your clothes off maybe you went wait a minute. I'd like to live to see next week. He's kind of like the Rob Gronkowski of spies, where he just says, he just, he just, like, women just flock to him. They know it's a bad thing. They know that this person just has, like, certain caveman qualities, but they're just like, you know what? I'm going to party with this guy. He drinks his martinis a certain way. I'm going to fuck him. Well, at least James Bond never needed a prescription pad. <laughs> or they do, like, an Indiana Jones thing where, like, James Bond has a son, like, a bastardized son. How could he not? You know, you can't tell me in all this time, all this time he hasn't slipped one past security. I mean, come on. I refuse to believe that he doesn't have a kid out there somewhere. All right. Oh, my God. Well, Q is, I imagine like Q is like, I'm your son, James. I would just like to point out that my son, Jameson, likes his bottle shaken, not stirred. Oh, you, you had to go there. Like, oh, my God. You set me up for it. This is your fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I know the puns are slowly taking over my body. It sucks. Yes, you can feel I, I them find myself now inside you. Not to, oh, Jesus, not to not to go off a tangent, but the puns, I'm starting to use them in my own language now like I'm speaking to somebody, even like on social media, and I, and I hate myself for You're it. You're getting older now. You're realizing that they're awesome. It's okay. <laughs> oh. So it's okay. We all we all learn at our own pace. <laughs> well, speaking of something that's that's pretty damn awesome, James. Our last story actually deals with Tomb Raider. It was actually some breaking news. Actually, that kind of broke today. I was kind of searching because you know, it, was, it was it was Gaming Thursday, and I was searching for a uh, story. And for a while, we said, "Hey, this has to be a time exclusive with Xbox. There's no way they're going to ignore the PC and PlayStation Four fan base and the consoles." Well, turns out. Yes, Microsoft, you can't hide anymore because Tomb Raider, Rise of, you know, Rise of Tomb Raider is a timed exclusive and it'll be arriving on the PS4 in holiday of 2016. Of course, November 10th, it comes out on the Xbox One and 360. Uh, your thoughts, James, you're somebody who doesn't have a PlayStation 4. And you're actually somebody who said this comes down to the whole how Tomb Raider is decides if I'm going to get a PS4 or an Xbox One. Yeah, and I think now that this announcement is made, it's almost like, well, what's the point of me getting an Xbox One now? Because now they've got everything on PS4. And I'll tell you what else this does. If I'm Microsoft, I'm like, what the hell? You're going to make this announcement now? So basically, their Black Friday bundle that you know that they're going to have, yeah. the Rise of the Tomb Raider, that's going to lessen the sales of that bundle now because this is leaked before that. So now people aren't going to go, oh, I need to get an Xbox for Tomb Raider. And then after they've already bought the Xbox, find out that it's going to be coming out on PS4 and on and PC in the, next, in the next year. So this is Crystal Dynamics double dipping and making money because now they're going to get two big November sales for Rise of the Tomb Raider <laughs> that they're going to get to capitalize on. Well, here's the thing is that and we talked about this off air. Crystal Dynamics, I think, reason why this is being announced now 
that's heading to PS4 and PC is because I think Crystal Dynamics kind of got tired of people saying, the hell is wrong with you? Why is this on PS4 or PC? Yeah. I think they were tired about people asking them, is this a time exclusive? Is this not? And again, it's just like, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to announce it. You know, let it go. Yeah. And the thing is, like, Microsoft wouldn't announce. Like, Crystal Dynamics came out and was just like, yeah, it's coming to PS4 and, and there. And you know, and it's just one of those things where I saw a story. I'm like, again, outside of the rare collection that Microsoft has and Gears of War, really, like, what do they really have? Yeah, I mean, and that's the problem. And here's the other question. Since it's going to be a year gap, you know there's going to be DLCs that come out in that year. Are those DLCs automatically going to be in the PC and PS4 versions? We don't know that. So they might actually get more content in a single game in the PS4 version. But the other thing that I was talking to you about off air is, does this say something about Tomb Raider as well? Because Tomb Raider could have easily said, we're going to be on Xbox, period. This is just the way it's going to be. PS4 people and PC people are going to have to deal with it. And they'd be basically... You know the Mario, the flagship game of that console. Does is this kind of in your mind? Does this kind of make you think maybe they don't think they can be a flagship <clears throat> game of a console? Well, I think Square Enix. The Square Enix was the people who announced it. Uh, of course, Dynamics, I believe, is a division of Square Enix. But uh, Square Enix announced it when they announced it. I think part of it was again. I think it was the backlash. But also, yeah, I think that Tomb Raider, like again, it's kind of like asking Uncharted to be the face of PS4 when you yeah. know it's a, it really can't. It can only be a part of a face of the PS4. Uh, Tomb Raider. I think they looked at it and said they looked at the other Xbox properties and says, okay, outside of Halo which fans are kind of getting tired of, and Gears of War, which is, again, going back to basics with Gears of War 4, what else do they have to offer, like, as far as original? Like, of course, you know, Sony has, well, not going to have Tomb Raider in there, but Sony has Last of Us, they have Uncharted, mm -hmm. you know, and a couple other games, and it's just, again, I think that they look at it and they say, Tomb Raider, I think, again, Especially because Tomb Raider isn't, it can't be a face of a console other than, I think, PlayStation, only because it's been on multi-platforms. You know, Last of Us, I mean, for the most, of, most part, I believe Last of Us was only on the I, I think you're Sony. Right. I think it was a Sony exclusive. And also, I think that when you look at, like, other other things, you know, that are you want to be faces of your console, they can't be on other platforms prior to their arriving on your console. You know what I'm saying? No, That'd be no. an original thing. Like, that's why Halo will never be a PS4, go to PS4, because it's an Xbox exclusive, because it's an original Xbox IP. With Tomb Raider, it was it's tough, because you're asking it to be a face of a franchise when it was already the face of a franchise prior on a different console, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree there. I, I don't think that... I mean, it's like if you were uh, a, a major player in sports and you were looking for that next new team, you're going to look at who else is on the team and go, okay, I think that we can win here. Sure, you're going to sell copies on Xbox One no matter what happened, but what happens when the Xbox Ones aren't selling and when the consoles aren't selling, the games aren't selling, and all you see, every report you see about console sales is how much... PS4 and Sony are dominating in the console sales. So do you want to be the big fish in the small pond? Or do you want to swim in everybody's pond and make a boatload of money? Exactly. You know, again, this is the thing that, like I said, Square Enix announcing this months ahead of the release for Xbox. Again, it says something. You know, it really says something. You know, with their X before, when they released this prior to their Xbox release. And again, I think a part of it became... 
we're tired of people yelling at us and saying this stuff. And how can we do this with Microsoft? You know? Well, you picked the wrong horse. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Definitely. I mean, that's exactly what you did. If they'd have done it. Here's, the, here's my question. And I think this is a legitimate question. Yeah. If it was, if it, if situations were reversed, and it was Sony who got the exclusive and not Xbox One, would there be any outrage at all for this to be pushed onto the Xbox One? Oh, I think the question and I was actually about to ask that when you look at this, I don't think there would be. I don't think we would be talking about this right now. Like, why is it an Xbox? Because I have a PS4, so it doesn't affect me as much. You know what I'm saying? Like, it. I don't. Th- I think there would be maybe less. Uh, there would still be outrage because you know how can it only be on PS4, but there would be more understanding because like, well, let's get it this way. Tomb Raider did, even though the last one was on both consoles, it did start out on Sony, so it's understandable. Whereas with this, it's like you only had one game really on Xbox, yet now it's an exclusive right. for you. Like that's insane after so many years of so many Tomb Raider games and it originating on PlayStation. Well, I mean, think about it, though. You were right about The Last of Us. I just looked it up. It was only on PS4. And uh, you bring up Uncharted and other games. Where's the outrage for those to be on Xbox One? You never see any stories about that. Whereas with this, with Tomb Raider, it seemed like every other week we were seeing a story about how people were so upset that Tomb Raider was not going to be on PS4 and PC. And you know how PC gamers are, too. But but the thing is, I want to go back to Uncharted and The Last of Us. I believe those were being made by Sony, or Sony had a partnership, you know what I'm saying, like an exclusive development partnership. So I think that's the reason why. But the thing is, like, yeah, Sony Entertainment actually did Last of Us. Uh, but still, it's again, it's just one of those things, you know. But you see my point. I mean, I I'm sure the, point, I'm yeah. sure there's other games there that that would fit that same example. Where's the outrage? Exactly, and I think that when it comes down to it is we're going to get to that age where just everything's cross-platform, you know, for the most part. Other and, the, the big names that start off with the certain brands, everything's going to be cross-promoted. Like Street Fighter, yeah. I, like part of these things, like Street Fighter Five, I believe, is a, is a, is a PS4 exclusive. But part of yeah. me thinks. Is there a part of it that's going to go to Xbox? I don't know. And if it doesn't, what does that say? You know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that from day one, even though Xbox has had some success, from day one, it's on the creative side. They have struggled from day one to come up with compelling content of their own. They were com- This is a, let's face it, this is a computer company that was going up against an entertainment company that, like you said, has the ability to develop their own games and their own stories and their own content, whereas a bunch of code monkeys aren't going to be able to do the same thing. You can't ask a computer programmer to come up with a compelling storyline for a game, so they're not going to have as much compelling original content because that's not the basis of their existence. They wanted to jump into something where they thought they could make money, and they did, and they thought that they could compete. And for a little bit they did, but now they're getting their asses kicked. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But again, we're going to see how this affects them going forward. I can't wait to actually talk about the sales. I want to see when it comes out for Xbox to see how you know the sales are. But that's going to do it for this week. And nerd news coming up next. We have an amazing, amazing interview coming up with Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu of DC Comics Black Canary. Stay tuned. The interviews come up next, right here on Down Nerdy. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. All right, put on those fishnet stockings, nerds, because we're talking about one of DC Comics's. Hottest books out right now with the creative team from Black Canary. It's Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu. How are you guys doing today? Good. Great. How are you doing? 
We're doing great. Very, very busy, of course. I know you guys are very, very busy as well. Uh, what's it like out there where you guys are? Uh, Andy and I are just like sitting out on a, a porch in Florida, sipping my time. <laughs> Florida. You want to put us <laughs> yeah. in this fantasy version? You want to put us in Florida in July? <laughs> <laughs> Good call. <laughs> no, but we're very excited to talk uh, to you about... from Florida, so she has... And he has very strong feelings about Florida. <laughs> oh, I've I've spent some time down there, so yeah, I know exactly what that's like. But we wanted to dive right in and ask you about what's an amazing book. We've read both issues that are out so far. So my first question to you guys is, why do you think this was the right time for Black Canary to have her own comic? Oh, man, it's so long overdue. I, I think the fans have been crying for a Black Canary comic for years, and I, I understand this is not exactly the Black Canary comic that everybody thought they were going to get. But, you know, maybe that's part of the fun of it. It's, um, I, I think what we're doing feels a, a bit more, like, energetic and contemporary, and it sets her apart from the crowd. It's just, it's not another, like, uh, you know, crime fighter in Seattle or Star City or Gotham City. Um, she's doing something different. She's on tour. She's kicking butts. How much inspiration, because you said this isn't something different, it's not your typical crime fire, it's more concert-based, which I really, really like. So if this is for both of you guys, uh, how much inspiration in this series comes from concert-based works like Gem and Holograms and Scott Pilgrim? <laughs> I am going to, uh, I'm going to admit that I uh, was at the right age to enjoy Gem when it first aired. I'm uh, a bit older, I guess. and um, I'm there with you, yeah, it's okay. I, I Holograms, it was... Uh, it's a pretty solid show, but I don't think it um, proved to be much of an inspiration for this exactly. Um, strangely enough, this just came, uh, it, it was a, a natural outgrowth of requiring something for Dinah to do in the Batgirl book that I was co-writing with Cameron Stewart. We had Dinah Lance in the book as a supporting character, and she just needed to do something other than be a superhero, because if she had been a superhero, we would have been writing Birds of Prey. Um, so we put her in a rock band. Her superpower is an amazing canary cry. Her scream that can level a building, it just seemed like a, a, a natural place to put her in a rock band. And uh, well, we didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with her. Um, it was, you know, she's part of the supporting cast. It was a smaller part of the story. Uh, and I really felt like there was more to say there. I felt like we had more to do. And um, so it was a really natural thing for to do for me to pitch that and and editorial was super into it and um i i think i only started looking for inspiration after that and i so i feel like it came from uh it came from an organic place and not from a place of of, of uh inspiration initially or um, finding external inspiration i should say I can see that. Well, I could tell that in, in the first two books, one of the main themes was kind of Dinah's internal struggle with her past and the, what's really brought it out, not just in the story, but in the art. Some of the panels of the art, just you could tell that there's that the emotions are so raw with the character in this book. Why was it important to make that an underlying theme of the book early on? Well, I, th I think we had to. I really don't think um, I, I felt a, a responsibility as a writer to not change this popular character completely. And this is a character who, uh, you know, I mean, she, she's got a past, a decades-old past in, in fandom in comics, but specifically in this continuity, uh, 
the character goes back to 2011, the debut of the New 52, I had to be true to that. So I had to write her in a way where it felt like she had been in the military, she'd been a crime fighter, and now she's on tour with a rock band. And what the hell does that mean? How, <laughs> how does all of this cope with the fact that she's now touring with a band? She's doing it for a reason, but is this her? Does this make sense for her? And I think those are the questions that the fans would have been asking anyway. So it just makes sense for Dinah to be asking them of her uh, of herself. And I think Andy just killed it. I mean, that the introspection uh, that you see on page two of issue one, where she's about to go on stage and she's looking at her boots. Right, that's exactly what I was saying, uh, yeah. There's a pair of stage boots, but then there's also her combat boots. And it, I think it speaks volumes that Annie just uh, crushed that page. It's so good. Oh, thank you. That's like some of my favorite stuff to draw is if there's a if there's a little bit of moping, I try to see if there's an opportunity for me to like luxuriate in that and expand it to as much as possible in one page. So uh, I think page one was the first thing that I like really, really honed in on. I was really excited to draw that. There was such Let an iconic part of that page, This is not a conversation too. that Annie and I have had yet. We, we haven't had this moping conversation, so I think moving forward into, like, issue six and into the second arc, you'll see a lot more moping. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. So, so Andy, I got to ask you, so what was some of your, your favorite parts to, to draw when you got the, the job on this comic, and what drew you to this book in the first place? Oh, well, Brendan's pitch was perfect for me. He said, you know, it's... Uh, rock and roll kung fu road trip and i was oh yes absolutely of course like why wouldn't i do this um it's so for so many things that i already enjoy not only you know comics but i also love fashion and rock history and performance and you know musicals and all these little things that i now get to incorporate into um into one book it's kind of surreal sometimes like when i'm drawing a page with just the weirdest, dumbest stuff on the planet that I thought, not dumb, but like, how am I getting away with this sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, I can't believe this is my job. So it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. I mean, your art really just jumps right off the page. And one of the reasons I think that was is that is the colorist on the book, Leah Lorridge, really makes his colors, for whatever reason, really make your art pop. So how important was it to find the right colorist on this book? It was very important because initially the plan was, for me anyway, was to do the line work and the color because I had a very specific idea of how I wanted this book to look. Like I had all of these um, mid-century gig posters like screen prints and uh, Xerox band flyers, you know, like all these things in my mind that I wanted to call back to in the art. And then when I realized I don't, it's just not feasible for the way that I work to to do all that for a monthly book, we had to find someone to um, to do the colors. And so I was reluctant at first, but I was like, okay, we really do have to find somebody. And so when Lee came on board and he colored the first issue, I was immediately like, oh, he's bringing so much more to this. Like, this is even better. Um, I'm, so I'm thrilled that he's on board. He brings a lot to the book. I don't know if you've, you guys have taken a look, but um, man, we do all this, like, fun zine stuff and, and we cut back and forth to, to different media. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like Steve's letters are, are just incredible. Amazing. Yeah. Book. 
So, Brendan, I noticed that on your Twitter you say you're you're a cinephile. So when you are when you're writing a so so when you're writing a book, how do you decide on the tone you want to take for that book? Do you want to say, okay, kind of make it make it this a little bit more apocalypse now because it's one of my favorite films? How do you do you kind of tie in your love for films and how you write your comics? I do a lot, in fact, uh, and, and I don't think I'm alone. All of my uh, my best friends and I, when we sit around and we talk about um, how we're going to approach our comics, end up talking about them in <laughs> talking about them as films. It's really strange. <laughs> um, maybe maybe it lets us be a little more original as comics. We're I don't feel like we're often taking things from other comics as as inspiration. We're often looking to films. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right thing to do, but. I certainly watch a lot more films than I do read than I, than I read comics, and it's not because of a lack of love for comics. In fact, uh, comics are one of my greatest loves. But um, I I don't feel like reading comics after I've been working on comics all day. I quite often just feel like watching another movie. And um, I don't work in films. I don't really aspire to work in films, and and they're just a great passion of mine. I um, can't stop buying Blu-rays, uh, even You're though I know they're out of fashion, and uh, I should just be streaming everything. I have a, a real addiction to the Criterion Collection. There, I've said it. It's out there for the <laughs> Yeah, Criterion's amazing. I have a film degree. Criterion, all my friends are like, I gotta get the Criterion. It's like, you already have this on Blu-ray and all the other copies. It's true. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm looking at my wall of Criterions right now. Well, they we are definitely my pride and joy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that this comic is going to be one of those for us. Now, I got to get back to something that I saw in issue two, and I, and I just have to ask because this is going to be a little bit spoiler e right now. So we see Dinah's husband, Kurt, is alive and well, and actually revealed as one of the members of the team that's hunting Ditto down. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding Kurt's character. So I got to ask, are we going to see more about his past as the story goes on? And is team seven hunting Ditto? Team seven will not be appearing in the book. Um, I think I'm, what I'm trying to do with Kurt and I, and I don't want to get into spoilery territory too much here. Um, but what I'm trying to do with Kurt is represent him in a way that will read super well to people who didn't read Birds of Prey or Team 7. So mm. all you need to know about Kurt is that he used to be Dinah's husband, and maybe there's some gray area in there, and maybe there are some feelings left over, but it's complicated. And if you've read the Gotham Academy book that I work on with my co-writer Becky Cloonan and, and uh, illustrator Carl Kershaw, I mean, we do something kind of similar in there where we start the book off with um, all of Silverlock who's kind of broken up with her boyfriend, but maybe he doesn't know it exactly yet, and they have some issues to work out. So that's where we are here. We've got a, a messy relationship to deal with. Um, there is This is going to lead into their mutual past a little bit, which does continuity-wise reach back to Team 7, but I'm not going to be pulling too much of the details of that into this book. I want this to feel clean. You should be able to read this Black Canary series without having to have read Birds of Prey or Team 7. I agree. I see where you're going with that. So, Brendan, in issue two, also, we see a character named Maeve also coming to the fold as a former bandmate. I know you don't want to get into spoiler territory, but are we going to maybe see more of her character going on this? Maybe she has a bigger role we might not see, foresee in the first uh, issue she's appeared in? 
Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a, a huge spoiler to say that you're going to see a lot of Maeve. We've seen the, um, the solicitations for upcoming issues where she is on the cover in a very prominent way. But yeah, she's, uh, she's maybe one of our favorite characters that we're, we haven't yet been able to dig into. Wouldn't you say any, any sense of amazing design work from me, it just kills me. I, I can't wait to see more of her. Oh yeah. I'm thrilled about Maeve. She's, um, she's a weird one. <laughs> so it's like another part of my, uh, like pop culture Rolodex where I get to unload all these references and styles and fashion on her or different character, um, inspirations on Maeve. Yeah. She's going to be fun. So now I know you said you're big into pop culture, Annie. So I have to ask you, you're big into music too, I'm sure. So if you had a band, what would your groupies be called? My groupies? Yeah. What would your groupies be called? What would your fans call themselves? Um, God, someone made this suggestion on Twitter. I think they said like Wu Fan Clan. And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> 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 it was like, it was like, I, I groaned, but I was also nodding. I'm like, yeah, that, that, that kind of works. So why don't we just, we'll just go with that. Everyone seems to enjoy that one for different reasons. <laughs> so, Hannah, you also recently tweet. I love your tweets on Twitter. They're hilarious. Uh, you, you tweeted recently. Oh, yeah, you, you recently tweeted. History has taught us that the most important part of any sting operation is picking a kick-ass name. So I gotta ask you, if you had a sting operation, what would the name be? Sting operation against what? There's so many things I want to bring down. And <laughs> There's destroy. so many things I want to rally against. Anything that's <laughs> number one on your list. Number one on my list. Oh boy. Oh no. I'm not that on board with um. I'm trying to look around for things I'm not on board with. There's so many things. <laughs> Drank too much. Probably, coffee. probably decaf coffee. I bet. <laughs> yeah, I would just drink. That's true. That's true. Decaf coffee. So let's decapitate decaffeination. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting really serious really fast when it comes to the decaf coffee. <laughs> Well, yeah. we're so we're so excited to see what's going forward with this book. Of course, issue number three is going to come out August the 19th. We want you to add this to your poll. Make sure you're reading this comic because I really do think, and when I said at the beginning, I really do believe this. This is probably the hottest new book that DC has right now. It's Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu from DC Comics Black Canary. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You know, that's pretty cool about these interviews when you're asking these certain kind of questions, you're tying in certain other interests that these our guests have, and you find out things like Brendan, Do Brendan Fletcher actually has a big love for Criterions, like a bunch of my friends do who are major cinephiles as well. And that Annie Wu would go to battle over the fact that she doesn't like decaf coffee. That's just, <laughs> you don't hear that kind of stuff every day. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of fun to, to, to pull back the curtain and... Uh, hey, we got some information. Now we know Team Seven's not going to be a part of this book, and they're going to go a different direction. So I'm glad that they actually, you know, answered that question. Well, yeah, I'm glad that when they came to that, you know, again, they didn't shy from it. They said, you know, they're not going to be in it. And again, that makes you even more wondering, how are they going to go about this? Because yes. now it brings more of an intrigue to it now, you yes, know? Yes, exactly. Instead of it's, it's typical, well, it's, built, it's, it's Team Seven and everything else, da-da-da. It's, no, this is, you know... Interesting, like, where can they go? Who knows? But, you know, it was really, really fun how Annie doesn't like Florida and <laughs> has a kind of a bad experience with that. And, you know, it's it's really, really fun. So we want to thank, of course, DC for uh, 
you know, helping us out and getting them on the show as well. It, it's really, really awesome by them. And, uh, you know, Clark, thank you very much as well with uh, hooking us up with Brendan and Annie. Yeah, and I just can't wait to dive into the rest of the series. Of course, we want to reiterate that issue number three comes out on August the 19th. Hopefully, you've talked to Bob over Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards in Virginia Beach. If you're in the Virginia Beach area, about adding that to your poll already. If you're anywhere across the country, even if you're doing it digital, just add this book because I'm telling you right now, we're not just saying this. This is, this is the book to watch. I'm telling you right now, of the DCU books that have come out, this is the one to watch because there's such there's so much cool art in there. There's a lot of intrigue, a lot of action. This is one you you want. Oh, exactly. With that being said, it's time to close out this week's show, boys and girls, nerd nerd that's alike. Again, we want to thank Brendan Fletcher, Annie Wu, everybody over at DC for helping us out today and getting this awesome interview and in your inside of your ears, I should say. And uh, you know, again, look forward to Black Canary number three. comes out August 19th. Don't forget to follow them on Twitter. Follow Annie Wu at Annie W. You can also follow Brendan Fletcher at Brendan Fletcher. Also, of course, DC Comics at DC Comics. We're on Twitter as well, James. You want to kick us off with that? Yes, we're at Down and Nerdy 757. I'm at James Ace with him. And Nick, you are? At Merc with One Arm. And as always, I leave you with this. Well, actually, you know what? Before I do that... We got to mention we are on the interwebs too, downnerdypodcast.com. We also have our own store you can purchase stuff from on Amazon, so it's totally safe and fine. Also, facebook.com slash downnerdy. Don't forget, James, we also have a number they can call the fans that gives their fan questions. That's right. It's 757-512-8229. Just leave any comments, questions you want on there. We'll talk about it on the show. We'll play back what you said, and then we'll talk about it on the show. It's just as simple as that. And, of course, don't forget Facebook as well, facebook.com slash down and nerdy. And with all like that, always I leave you with this. Passive comic greeting, always back and board your comics.